This episode is sponsored by Macmillan Audio. If you're like me and still missing the audiobook experience of The Nightingale, you'll want to add Beyond That the Sea by Laura Spence Ash and read by L. Potter to your list. As German bombs fall over London in 1940, two working class parents make an impossible choice. They decide to send their 11-year-old daughter Beatrix to America for the duration of the war. Soon B slips seamlessly into a new life with an affluent Boston family, and the girl she had been begins to fade away, until abruptly the war ends and she's called home to London. This is a beautifully written, utterly absorbing novel. Start listening to Beyond That the Sea by Laura Spence Ash now, wherever audiobooks are sold. Hello and welcome to A Bookish Home. I'm your host, librarian and writer, Laura Zaro-Kopinski, and today I'm so excited to have Tori Whitaker back on the podcast to discuss A Matter of Happiness, a bittersweet novel about family, hard truths, and self-discovery in which a cherished heirloom opens up a century of secrets. New York Times bestselling author Patty Callahan Henry calls A Matter of Happiness a thrill of a ride and a beautiful read. Violet and Melanie are connected across generations by blood, bourbon, cars, and a great need for independence. Tori Whitaker is also the best-selling author of Millicent Glenn's Last Wish. She belongs to the Bourbon Women Association and the Historical Novel Society. Her work has appeared in the Historical Novels Review and Bookmarks Magazine. Tori graduated from Indiana University, is an alum of the Yale Writers Workshop, and has recently retired from a national law firm where she served as a chief marketing officer. She spent a decade in Detroit because of her husband's career in the automotive industry. The two now reside near their children outside Atlanta and have been married for 45 years. Connect with Tori through ToriWhitaker.com. Tori, thanks for coming back on A Bookish Home and congratulations on the new book. Laura, it is so fun to be back and get to chat with you again. Thank you. Well, I just love getting to sink into this world of interesting women and bourbon and history. Can you tell listeners a little bit more about the premise for A Matter of Happiness? Yay, I'm so glad you enjoyed it. Yes, A Matter of Happiness is about two women that are related and they're about a century apart. And one is Violet in the 1920s jazz age during Prohibition, and her great-great-great-niece, Melanie, who's in the modern day. And they have a couple things in common besides their lineage, and that is during Prohibition, Violet is an independent-seeking woman. She's the modern woman. She's lost her job at a Kentucky bourbon distillery, and she moves north to the automotive boom in Detroit for work. And she experiences love and some other things we may get into. But then in the modern day, Melanie works in the bourbon industry. So they have that in common. And so we have sort of a juxtaposition of when bourbon in Kentucky was decimated and then the, the, the bourbon boom in today's world in, um, 2018 is when it's set in the modern storyline. And both of them experience problems like all women have, I suppose. And that's with work and, and colleagues and, and members of their family and, and love and, um, and basically, they're trying to find themselves and what makes them happy. And that's where the story title comes from. A matter of happiness. I love it. 
Yeah. And, you know, I, I follow you on social media and I know from your bio and everything that you're part of the Bourbon Women Association. And so I thought that maybe the spark of inspiration came through some kind of interaction with that, but I could be wrong. Where did this book start for you? Okay, well, you phrased that in an interesting way. The spark of inspiration actually came from the car, and I'll go into that a little bit. Uh, but I, when I was researching the era that I was going to set this in, the 1920s and the bourbon industry and everything, it was really only after I established that storyline with bourbon that I discovered this Bourbon Women's Association. And um, oh. my gosh, it, it, it just, um, I, I loved getting involved. What I didn't realize was that it's not just about bourbon. It's about the women. And they're such a, an amazing group. I've been a member for over two years now, and they've got local programs and national programs and virtual programs. And um, yeah, that, that um, helped me with my research, but more importantly, gave me a, a new whole group of friends uh, to add. I mean, it was amazing. Um, as for the actual kernel of inspiration, my husband has been involved in the automotive industry since we got married 45 years ago. I mean, since before that. And in his semi-retirement years, he does automotive restorations and customizations of the interiors of classic cars. So like he mainly works on cars that are from the 1930s. So years ago, even before I wrote my debut novel, I had had this thought in the back of my mind sort of churning about what would happen if there's this old vintage car stored away somewhere that someone finds, and then there's something in it that throws us back into a story. You know, I love dual timeline novels. My my debut, Millicent Glenn's Last Wish, was dual timeline, and this one is too, and I love to read them. But that was just the kernel of it. And then when I started, I guess after I got published with my debut novel, and I was thinking, what am I going to write this time? I revisited that idea. And, and that's where A Matter of Happiness was born. And one of the first crucial questions I had to ask myself as the researcher, and as you know, we love to do the research um, if we love historical <laughs> yeah. fiction. And I had to decide, okay, what car am I going to use? And, and so I just started Googling different things. Um, I knew I was going to set it in early 1920s and do the uh, you know, flappers and everything of that era. So that's when I discovered this car called the Jordan MX Playboy. It's kind of an odd name, but this Jordan motor car company was so wildly popular. The cars called Jordans were so wildly popular with the modern women that are flappers that F. Scott Fitzgerald named Jordan Baker in The Great Gatsby after these Jordan cars, uh, Jordan Baker um, after the Jordans. And, and that fascinated me. And this advertising campaign that they did in the year, uh, one of the critical years of my book, uh, 1923, this advertising campaign that they did was targeting women, was targeting these young, as the campaign says, wild and tame women. And 
it just captured me so much that I, I just knew this is the car I'm going with. And ultimately, it lands on my book cover. That cover, um, I'm digress- digressing here a bit, but you might be interested to know how. I wanted to hear about the cover, too, so I'm glad. It's such a glamorous, just gorgeous cover. <laughs> oh, thank you. Well, the uh, w- once we're well into the editing with the editors at the publishing house, they give they give some options for the cover. And they sent me four options, very different. And oh my gosh, they took my breath away. I loved them all. Um, but there was one with a car and the editor said, we don't usually say this, but I'm just telling you right up front, we're all in love with the one with a car. Um, (laughs) and, and I, I really liked it too. And I love that red and um, I love how they've got the, the flapper woman overlaying, the car and she's in black and white with her pearls and her hair bobbed and all. And then you've got the car back in the background with this red cover. And so I thought it was cool, but they didn't have the Jordan on there. They had a car that looked very much like it. I'll say, and to the average viewer, they wouldn't have known the difference, but I said, if we're going to have the car on the cover, we got to have the real car. It took another two months really to get the official rights to get that car picture. Um, not, not because it was objected to. I mean, I I immediately got the verbal, um, approval, but to get all the legal, um, forms and all that stuff that they require, um, took some time, but so it's the real car. I mean, that is the car that Violet would have bought and then stored in her Victorian carriage house until she died at age 103. And Melanie in um, current times was a little girl. She remembers Aunt Violet um, as an older woman and, and being in that car with her and playing in that car. And, and the car is the ultimate symbol of freedom. Um, in uh, the jazz age to a woman. I wanted to talk about that a little more because I'm, so my work in progress is also set in the twenties, kind of the late 1920s. And I was curious, you know, you do such a great job of capturing that time and what it would have been like to be a woman trying to seek that freedom and everything. And I wondered if there were particular sources that you found really helpful. And then along with that, if there's anything um, in your research that like particularly intrigued you that maybe like you couldn't stop thinking about? Oh gosh, I am so excited that you're writing about the late 1920s. I can't wait to read it. (laughs) One book, (laughs) one book that really honed in on, on the, the flappers, um, of the era for me is called the lost girls by Linda Simon. And it was so insightful to me as a writer because it detailed not just what flappers were. I mean, I think we all have this vision of them with their shorter dresses and their bare arms and their their hair and maybe some headbands and stuff. And they're, they're dancing and they're drinking and they're smoking. I think we generally have that visual. But what this book did for me was really show how they 
became to be that uh, from little girls, the things that they read, the, the stuff that they saw in their magazines and in silent films and the way women or little girls were raised during that time by their parents. And then, and then the things that they faced in the world, um, um, like world war one. Um, and, and they saw people in their communities leaving and, and then either coming back and being heroes and heroines or, or not coming back. Um, and then right after that is the, the Spanish flu. And, and these things, I think, if I if I'm reading the research correctly, it kind of bred in these young women this um, need to go out and experience life while they could. And then you add in the 1920 um, opportunity for them to get to vote for president, and so they're feeling free and emboldened, and um, and then that all led into what they experienced as the young modern women of the 1920s. And also you add in uh, the stock market and their investing and um, even, even uh, clerical workers were investing at that time. And, and um, you know, you could be a gas station attendant and investing during that time and borrowing money sometimes to do it and, and everything. And we know the crash comes, but my story doesn't go that far. Um, it, it really, only goes to about 1923 or maybe into 1924. I have got to check out that book. That sounds um, wonderful because I think that is true. Like um, kind of getting into the mentality that, that led to um, the behaviors and um, like the choices that women would have made at the time, I think is so interesting. And I've, I've read a lot of more kind of general works or my my project takes place in um, Fall River, Massachusetts. And I, so I was kind of interested to see like oh. the way you brought Detroit to life because Fall River mm-hmm. is more like a clothing manufacturing at the time and like a mill town, but sort of similar in the sense that it's really defined by a particular industry. And so I wondered kind of as you were bringing <clears throat> 1920s Detroit to life, while kind of keeping in mind like the national mood and everything, was there anything in particular that helped you kind of, I guess you lived in Detroit for a long time, but anything in particular that really helped you like zero in on like what it would have been like in Detroit at the time? Yes. I, I decided to set part of the book in Detroit. Uh, Violet is born and raised in Kentucky. And, and as I say, she, she loses her job as a clerical worker in a bourbon distillery when prohibition hits. And, and yet she wants to be adventurous and she wants to go out on her own. And she doesn't want to marry, uh, at least at that time. Um, she, so she goes off on her own. If you can imagine a 19-year-old woman, even now, leaving home and going from Kentucky to Detroit all on her own to get a job and everything. I mean, it's kind of a big step but back then um, as a woman. So I did research into things like boarding houses because I was going to have her live in a boarding house. And there's just interesting things I learned all along the way. Like I thought, okay, well, I've got to have her in an all women's boarding house. I can't have her be in one with men. And then when I researched, I discovered, no, 
it was the all women boarding houses that were suspect that it was safer for them to go live in one where there were other men. Otherwise the, the, um, owner of the boarding house could be suspect for running a brothel. And I'm like, okay, interesting. So, um, so there were little things like that. And, um, and then it was, it was fascinating for me to know after having lived just outside the city for 10 years, but I worked right downtown Detroit. I mean, I was right on the main drag through town where literally three or four blocks away was the General Motors world headquarters that had been built in the early 1920s. And, um, but what I didn't know really was about the motor car boom of the late 1910s and early 1920s. It was, I mean, Detroit was the fastest growing city in America during the time I write about. And it was the fourth largest city in the country, but it was it was growing because of immigrants coming over and wanting to get factory jobs and then the great migration with Southerners coming up and wanting work. And I mean, they were being highly, um, I mean, Detroit, the automakers were, were, were recruiting. I mean, they wanted people to come. Then you had farmers across the Midwest coming for work and women coming who could get jobs there. And so it was a boom town, but I didn't know this either. I didn't know that it was a hub of illegal booze during prohibition. I'd lived there and um, just, it was just a part of the history I wasn't aware of. And, and so in short, there's this very narrow river between Detroit and Canada that right goes right over um, to where booze was still allowed to be produced. Uh, and even though they couldn't do it here. So there was these bootleggers. And, and as a matter of fact, Detroit, or that is Michigan, went into prohibition a year or two before the rest of the country. So the bootleggers were already experienced in the rum runners. And that is the ones that went across the water. Um, they already knew the game. And so when, uh, when national prohibition hit in uh, January of 1920, I'm thinking it was, um, it, it became a real hub. They would, they would take boats over to Canada, get all this booze and then come back over at night and, and then disseminate this, uh, through underground networks all across the country, this liquor. And, and so that made Detroit uh, a more dangerous place while you've got all this other boom going on. Um, and there was just speakeasies galore. And, um, and this is not to say that my characters are involved in that net, in that network. They're not bootleggers. My characters aren't. They're the, they're the ones that are living their lives and enjoying their lives. But the backdrop of Detroit with this element of, danger and everything um, is there. 
If you love hearing about the path to publishing a book on this podcast, I highly recommend you check out the hashtag AmWriting podcast with authors KJ Delantonia, Jess Leahy, and Serena Bowen. Hashtag AmWriting is the place for fun, actionable advice for getting your work done for writers in every genre. This is my favorite writing podcast. I've been listening for years, and the hosts have really become author mentors I can easily access while I take a walk or wait for the school bus. I've gotten so many great tips on approaches to outlining, writing a first draft, revision, craft book recommendations, promotion, accountability. I can't imagine trying to achieve my goal of publishing a book without their weekly show. And their archive is a treasure trove. If there's something in your writing life you're wondering about or struggling with, they've done an episode on it. Start listening to hashtag AmWriting today with your favorite podcast app. And if you're interested in hearing more about co-host KJ Delantonia's latest novel, In Her Boots, which is a laugh out loud delight and must read, you can go back to episode 113 of A Bookish Home. Such a rich setting to have it all taking place in. Um... Well, I wanted to ask too, you mentioned kind of when you were working downtown and I, and I did want to ask the last time we talked, you were really having to kind of squeeze your writing of your first book in on vacations and days off and things. And now I think <laughs> you're full time writing. And so I'm just uh-huh. kind of curious what that transition's been like and what your writing routine is kind of like now. Okay. Well, I did write this book while I was still working full time. I just retired. Yeah, I retired from my corporate career uh, about, let's see, five, four, I guess four or five months before A Matter of Happiness released. But what happened, honestly, is that during COVID, my uh, organization and, and, and so many others sent people working from home. And so instead of having to commute to downtown Atlanta, I live outside the city now. And, and instead of commuting to, you know, the central business district of the city, uh, which would take me anywhere from 45 minutes to an hour with rush hour traffic and everything. I mean, and also instead of having to get dressed up and and everything. I, I, I worked from home. And so it basically gave me three more hours a day where I wasn't driving and I'm sitting here in my office in my sweats or my shorts, you know, working. <laughs> and so I had extra hours to the day. And then also because of the travel uh, restrictions and everything, we weren't going anywhere. So I had, I'd been with the organization for more than 20 years. I had all kinds of vacation time. And, and so I would take that and, and all I did was write. And so I was really cranking out the work during those two years. And I was able to do that. Um, but I did retire after being there 23 years. And um, it was a good time because preparing for a book launch is, is a job in and of itself. And, and um, so now yeah, I. Um, it, it's funny. Um, I want to get back into this period like I did when I was working. If I took a week off, I would write for ten or fourteen hours a day. Uh, oh wow! And, and I haven't gotten in that zone yet. I've been um, working on my next book with outlining and research, 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 and and I've started writing it. But what I look forward to is just being able to get in that real zone where I can crank out the chapters. Um, and, and I think I'm right on the cusp of that. 
Um, I'm, I'm ready to start dipping in there really soon. Uh, I think because where I'm at with my outlining and um, having gotten some feedback from my critique group on the, on the opening of the story. So that's kind of an interesting place to be. So you're at sort of the beginning of your third novel, and I'm interested to hear maybe what you are maybe doing differently this time or like things you maybe did with your, at the beginning of the process with your first book that you're like, oh no, it saved me time to do things this way or just anything you've kind of learned along the way that's changed your process. Well, by nature, I'm a planner. So I am not a pantser as they say in, in writing um, for writers, I, I, I do all this research and then I, I outline. So, um, so that process for me hasn't changed, but what I did learn in, in first, in my first two books that got published is that I'm also very open to the detours that come along the way and my outline adjusts. And I mean, Gosh, I've done some major revisions. I mean, major, major. Like, for example, with A Matter of Happiness, we've got Melanie's, I mean, uh, Violet's mother in that historical narrative timeline. And she, you might recall, has a real influence on Violet's life. But in my very first drafts of that book, she dies early on and in, in like the first chapter. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And um, I, I, in revisions, I brought her back. And, and that's huge. I mean, because that changes your point of view character, their whole mindset. I mean, if their mother is gone or their mother's there supporting and, and everything, um, that was a major revision. But, but I do what I need to do to try to make the story better. And I really feel like that was a decision that, um, I never turned back on that one. I, I was so glad I brought her mother back. And um, so I, I learned along the way that I can have my outline. But here's the thing, Laura, I, I, I believe, is you get to know your own characters better as you go. I mean, I can do little character descriptions and whatnot at the beginning. But it's really in writing their stories that, they come to life even in my own head and heart. And, um, you know, I get emotional when I'm writing uh, their paths and that's a good thing for me. And, and so those things are the same. Um, in both cases with both these first two books, there were little pieces of myself that inspired with, with Millicent's story that, was a entirely fictional. Um, it was entirely fictional book, but it was in. It, it was drawn from a tragic um, incident in somebody's life that I know um, in my family, and um, I don't talk much about that. But um, it, I felt that story needed to be told, and I put it in all kinds of fictional stuff, the kind of work that they did and, you know, where they lived and stuff. But, um, um, but then with this other one, as I've said, it was initially inspired by, um, my husband and his work and cars. And so with this book, um, 
I'm just being inspired by something that's not something from my own personal life. And so that's something new for me. Um, and it's something that I love and it's art. I love novels that surround the world of art. Um, I can read about in fiction, um, forgeries or, or, um, say like uh, some novels these days about the looting of art by Nazis in world war two. And, um, mine, Mine are not, uh, mine doesn't focus on those aspects of art, but the one I'm writing about now, I'm, I'm really just immersed in this research about art. And frankly, um, over the years when I had to travel for my business, if I'd go into a city, I would go to the art museum. I'd get there early or leave late and just go tour an art museum all by myself. Um, it could be San Francisco or it could be Boston or, anywhere. And I love going to art museums. And um, I never studied art except art appreciation in one class in college, but uh, I'm enjoying learning more about it. And um, I've got an angle to this book that um, I won't be ready to talk about for months, but unless something goes wrong between now and the next time we talk <laughs> and I <laughs> go off and write something else, then that's where I'm at. And are you able to say what era that's going to be set in mm. or is it too early? Well, it's a tricky question. Um, I think it might dip into more than one era. I don't know. <laughs> I don't, I, I don't know yet. I, I, I won't know until I try to write that and we'll see, yeah. but there'll definitely be uh, a, a modern time. And you know, these, these books, these days, um, it's, it, um, it pains me to say that even the 1960s or 70s is considered historical fiction these days. I mean, considering right. I, I came of age during those eras, it's like, okay. But um, Well, even I was talking talking to a critique partner recently, and her book is set in the early 90s, and we were both like, I don't know. Does that get considered historical fiction now? Just kind of frightening, but um. and probably because it's it's <laughs> twenty five years is it, or does it have to be right. fifty? I don't know. I don't know. Well, I did want to ask too if there are, um, and they can be historical fiction or not. Any books that you've gotten to read lately that you'd want to recommend that you're enjoying? Well, yeah, sure. Uh, just going on that riff of the art books. Um, one of my favorites of last year was Lisa Barr's most recent novel, Woman on Fire. And I recommend this one a lot. It's a, it's a thriller, modern day. It's not uh, historical, but there are, there, I mean, it, it, there are, I guess, flashbacks that go back to World War II in this novel. It's, it's one that uh, does revolve around the Nazi looting of great masterworks during that time. And um, gosh, it's just such a page turner. And then recently I read Horse, H-O-R-S-E, that's set in Kentucky. And it goes back to the 1800s. Um, and it, it kind of surrounds a, a prize-winning racehorse, but it also surrounds this painting 
of this horse. And so um, it's partially set in a museum in the modern day and then it goes back to um, that era. And it actually goes back then to another era that is set in um, the art world of New York. Um, so I, I love that it's set in these art scenes, but also horse is very much um a story that surrounds slavery during pre-Civil War and a story of a young Black man and everything that I think is just so interesting and relevant. And so that, that would be two that um, I, I could offer up. Yeah, those both sound so good. But I'm really excited about the idea of your next book being set in the kind of to do with art. That sounds really fun. Oh, well, yeah, I so enjoyed A Matter of Happiness. And I think listeners are really going to love kind of sinking into this world. And I think you you do such a wonderful job with your dual timeline. So anyone who's a fan um, of that style of historical fiction, I think is really going to enjoy this one. So I hope people go pick it up at their local bookstore or get your holds in at the library. And Tori, just thank you again for coming on and um, best of luck with the um, work in progress. Well, thank you so much for having me again. It's an honor and just a pleasure to talk with you and good luck on your writing too. I am excited (laughs) to hear more. For links to all of the books mentioned on this week's episode, you can visit abookishhome.com. If you are enjoying the show, I hope you take a minute to subscribe and also rate and review it wherever you get your podcasts. And if you enjoyed this episode, I would encourage you to share it on social media to help other people find the show and this episode. Thanks for listening, everyone, and happy reading.